Do please sit down. And uh, if you've got one of the church Bibles, you'll find uh, the reading on page 1048. If you're in your own Bible, we're in Luke chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 together. We've been working our way through the whole of Luke's Gospel in St. Andrews for um, a couple of years now, on and off. And we've um, just gone past chapter 15. But this evening, we're going to look together at chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. I think it'll be great for us on an evening when we're sharing the Lord's Supper together. It was great for us this morning, I, I should say this. Um, we had Andy Robertson with us this morning um, in St. Andrew, so it was great to have him. Thank you for letting him out to play for, uh, for one morning. I think he's coming next Sunday as well. We're really keen to be very active partners with you in the work in Charleston. It's uh, so exciting to hear about it. We're a congregation who has received so much from others over the years, not least from uh, yourselves here at St. Pete. So um, it's a thrill for us to be able to partner with them. We're going to be uh, doing a collection to try and support the work there over the next few years. And uh, please be assured of our prayers. It's one of the most exciting things I've heard about in a long time. So it's great to be partnering with you. But now let's uh, turn to God's word together and let me read from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Our dear Father, we want to praise you for your word and for the promise of your presence with us now by the power of your spirit. We ask that he would work in us at the end of this long day to open our minds to understand your word, to open our hearts to receive it, and to bend our will individually and for this church family, that our life may be shaped by what you teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And uh, I'm sure that the emotion of these two uh, stories that Jesus has just told us is one that we can all relate to. We've all known, I guess, what it is to lose something, uh, wallet, keys, phone, passport, whatever it may be, that sense of panic, hunting everywhere. And I hope we've known too the, the joy, the relief that comes when you find it again. Um, just the other day, uh, my wife Emily lost her purse. We'd been over here in Dundee. We thought we'd taken it with us. When we got back, it was nowhere to be found. So 
Um, I want you to know that in our household at those moments, there are no cross words, there are no uh, raised voices. Everyone stays very calm. No one says anything that they might regret at any uh, later point. But there we were, turning her handbag inside out, going through the car over and over again with a fine tooth comb, nothing, phoning the bank, putting the credit cards on hold, and then the joy and the relief when we found it exactly where we'd left it uh, on the bedside table. Um, we've, we've only once lost a child in uh, all of our parenting. That was even worse, as you can imagine. We were down in London about 10 years ago, massive shop, and we turned around and our eldest, who I think he was three at the time, wasn't there anymore. And you can imagine every nightmare thought that would run through our heads. We were running around the shop faster and faster, calling his name louder and louder. And then the relief, the joy when we found him in a corner, completely oblivious to everything and uh, happily playing with a fire engine that he'd found uh, somewhere. Well, this evening, Jesus tells us these two very famous lost and found stories as a way of teaching us about the character of God. Some of us will have grown up thinking of God as being this really distant authority figure, like a a judge or a policeman, one who is against us or waiting for us to step out of line so that he can tell us off. Others will have grown up thinking of him in that sort of Father Christmas kind of way, one who says, well, unless you're really, really good, you won't get any toys this year, but we all know that you're going to get the toys in the end. Let me say there's One man who truly knows what God is like, and that is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says to us this evening, we should think of him like a a shepherd who is searching for a lost sheep, like a woman hunting for a lost coin. And I wish we had time to see how he's like a father who waits, longing for his lost son to come home. So these stories then are going to teach us two big truths about the character of God. If we're going to hear them properly, though, we just need to register the audience to whom Jesus spoke them. That will tell us something of his purpose in teaching them. And we see that there in verses 1 and 2. It's a double audience. There are tax collectors and sinners who are gathering around to hear Jesus. But there's Pharisees and teachers of the law there as well who are muttering, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this double audience comes from opposite ends of the religious spectrum. At the one end, we've got these big crowds. Verse 1, the the tax collectors and sinners. Uh, Tax collectors were seen as traitors. Many of you will know this. They were seen as blasphemers as well because they acknowledged Caesar as Lord and they would collect taxes on his behalf from their fellow Jews. So they were hated for that. And the sinners were... Notorious. It just does what it says on the tin. Some of them were criminals. Some of them were just dishonorable. But they were all a long way away from God. They'd all been unfaithful to him. And as a result, they were, they were unwelcome in polite, certainly in religious society. And the, the surprise for us in Luke 15 is that it's that group of spiritual unlikelies who are gathering around Jesus to hear him preach and teach about God's kingdom. Within Luke, to hear Jesus is a great thing to do. Discipleship in Luke is all about hearing Jesus. We were um, 
I'm told back in chapter 6 that the wise people are those who hear the word of Jesus and does what he says. That's like the, the house uh, built on the rock, if you remember that. In the parable of the sower, the good soil are those who hear the word and retain it. Mary is commended in chapter 10 for sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his word. Most recently, the verse before our passage Jesus has just said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So when these tax collectors and sinners are hearing Jesus, they're doing the right thing. There were all sorts of people around Jesus that you might call kind of fringy types who were just along for the ride. They liked watching his miracles. They liked hanging out around the crowd of people who were following Jesus. That's not what these guys are doing. These are people who are receiving Jesus's word, who are repenting, turning back to God and listening to what he says. That makes them very, very different to the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the other half of the audience. They weren't people who were submitting to Jesus's word and listening to him. They were rejecting him and grumbling at his ministry. He keeps the wrong sort of company, they were saying. If he spends time with them, then he's not one with us. And if he's not one with us, then he can't be one with God. And so you've got this back to front thing going on. You'd think it would be the, the religious types, the religious leaders who would be hanging on every word that the Son of God said. Actually, they're hardening their heart to him, and instead we've got these very unlikely people listening to his word. And Jesus tells these stories to them. In part, he's wanting to reassure the sinners who have turned back to him. And in part, he's wanting to rebuke the self-righteous Pharisees. And he teaches them two truths about God. The first is about God's mission, which is to seek the lost. The mission of God to seek the lost. And God's desire to seek the lost is pictured for us first in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, Jesus says, and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it. Uh, I was preaching up on the, the Black Isle in Ferentosh and Rosales just um, a couple of weeks ago. We had a phone call from the pianist just before the service started. I'm not going to be able to make it to church, she said. What is the, the big drama we wanted? The cows had escaped. They were all over the road. She couldn't get there. I thought this doesn't happen in St. Andrews very much. But if you're a country kind of person, you'll know that animals are famous for various things. Sheep are famous for their stupidity and for knowing a hundred different ways to get lost and to uh, die. And so the wise shepherd carries out regular stock checks just to make sure that all of his sheep are accounted for. And if one of them, when he counts up at night, one of them's missing, he will drop everything to go and find it. It's not that he's leaving the 99 in danger or neglecting their safety. They're safe already where they are, but one is missing. And so he goes to search everywhere until he finds it. 
Uh, we got a great living enactment of this on holiday as a family a couple of summers ago. We got, came back from a walk one evening. We were in the Lake District staying in a little cottage. And uh, in the back garden, there was a sheep. And uh, he was happily munching away on the grass. So we let him be. He let us be. But when we woke up the next morning, he was gone. But soon after, the, the farmer turned up on his quad bike. And uh, he said, Uar, because that's what, that's what farmers say in those parts of the world. He said, Uar, has anyone seen my sheep? And uh, I, I knew I'd be preaching on this passage sometimes, so I thought this is too good an opportunity for an illustration to miss. So we dispatched the children to the four corners of the village to go and find the sheep. They hunted high, they hunted low, and eventually they found the sheep. They got the farmer. He was sure enough, he was delighted. It worked just the way the parable says. Or verse 8, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? So the farmer had lost 1% of his flock, but this woman's need is greater still. Um, A little silver coin was uh, only worth one day's wages. What's that? If you're uh, on minimum wage, I guess that's 50, 60 pounds, something like that in our money. But if that's right, her total net worth, she only had 10 of them, was five or 600 pounds. And now 10% of all that she has is missing. And so, of course, she lights a lamp, she finds a broom, she sweeps the house until she finds it. And the emphasis is on the, the diligence of her search. We're told she searched carefully until she found it. And Jesus is saying that is what God is like. He is diligent, careful. He is determined in his mission to seek the lost. We'll push that home a little bit together in a moment. But first, we need to lodge, don't we, that these stories only make sense if the natural state of human beings is to be lost. I take it that stands to reason. The shepherd doesn't go hunting for the 99 sheep that are safe and sound. The woman doesn't light the lamp and get the broom for the sake of the nine coins that are safe in her purse. You only seek for something that is lost. And so amidst the familiarity of these stories, we need to recognize that they teach an an understanding of humanity that flies in the face of what we're brought up believing and what we like to think about ourselves. The narrative that most of us will have been brought up with is the, the cry, I guess, of the, the liberal humanist, the hopeful, optimistic cry that we're all free and we can be whatever we like and do whatever we like. In spiritual terms, you even hear people speak about seekers as though um, uh, the suggestion being that poor old God is lost or hiding somewhere. And it's down to us to try and find him, maybe up on a remote mountain somewhere or in an experience. And Jesus says, no, all of that is back to front. God is just fine, actually. And we are those who by nature are lost. The Apostle Paul says, there is no one who seeks God. Martin Luther used to uh, speak of humanity as being so curved in on ourselves, that was his phrase, so caught up and consumed with ourselves that we are incapable of seeking God or pleasing God by ourselves. And that is Jesus' assumption here. The sheep can't find the shepherd, the coin can't find the purse. 
They are lost and in need of external help. And that's what we're like apart from the work of God in our life. And so it is very good news indeed that the mission of God is to get his hands dirty with the work of seeking the lost. It's what God promised he would do back in Ezekiel 34. In Ezekiel 34, God is berating the shepherds of Israel, the religious leaders, for failing to care for his people. And he promises that one day he himself will do something about it. He says, I will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he's with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them. I will pasture them. I will tender them, he says. I myself will tend my sheep. And so it was that God the Father sent the Son into the world. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, But the sick, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke 19, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Because the consistent story of the whole of the Bible is that the great mission of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not to reward the spiritually perfect, because then we'd all be doomed but rather to seek and to save the spiritually lost and helpless. Can I ask you then to to put yourself for a moment in the shoes of one of the tax collectors or sinners who are in the crowd and listening to Jesus that day. And my guess is that you wouldn't need a preacher to tell you that you were lost because it would be the only life that you'd ever known. You may have had good times in life, you may have had hard times, but the one thing that would never have been in any doubt in your mind is that when it comes to God and to spiritual things, to church, your face doesn't fit. You'd be thinking you'd made too many bad choices. You'd be thinking you'd racked up too many black marks. So you would know that you were lost. And every time you went anywhere near the doors of a church, I'm sure the religious establishment would have reminded you of the fact and made sure that you didn't feel at home. What a relief then to discover that Jesus is the friend of sinners and to hear him teach that the nature of God is not that he throws the book at people who sin like a grumpy headmaster might, nor even that he he mutters under his breath and crosses over to the other side of the road so that he doesn't have to deal with them. But rather that it is his very nature to search them out carefully to seek high and low until he finds them. There is in these words of Jesus real hope, real reassurance, real comfort for any, and it could well be there's some here like this tonight who who go on feeling, even if you've been in church for many years, that the mistakes of your past disqualify you from ever being welcome at the great banquet that God will throw in his new creation. Do you ever feel that your your face doesn't fit at church? Do you ever trip up sometimes in your Christian life and feel a nagging sense of guilt that keeps you from coming back and makes you want to withdraw away from God's people and from places like this? 
May I say you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus came for. But if there is reassurance here for those who are lost or feel it, there's a challenge here for the church as well. Because if the mission of God is to seek the lost, that will be our task also. In fact, Jesus makes that point explicitly at the end of Luke when he says that the mission of the church will be to preach the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all the nations of the world. Because it is through the preaching of God's word that the lost will be found as the Spirit works. So the job of the church is not to help make people nicer or to persuade us to do our recycling as good as those things may be. It's not to fund, uh, encourage the funding of, uh, of the upkeep of religious buildings. The mission of the church is to seek the lost. I want to suggest that historically and in the present, the church has has wobbled off that tightrope and fallen off it in one of two different ways. Sometimes churches are too exclusive and isolationist. This is the the self-improvement, self-righteous approach to church that says, if your life isn't already sorted, you're not welcome here with us. It says we're really interested in sheep who are safe in the pen. And if one wanders off, well, that's a shame, but that's their problem. It's an attitude that leads churches to lift up the drawbridge and to bolt the doors really, really tight, thinking that's how we can keep all the bad stuff in the world out there. And failing to see that at the very same time, what we're doing is making sure that no one can get in. Uh, The other mistake would be for the church to be so keen to be inclusive and open to all that it forgets that the reason that Jesus came wasn't to join people in sin or to condone it, but rather to call them to repent of it. Uh, Think of it, when the shepherd finds a sheep uh, lying in a ditch somewhere, he doesn't leave it there or jump in beside it and affirm its life choices. No, he picks it up, puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. When the woman finds her coin down the back of the sofa, she doesn't say, oh, there it is, and leave it there. I'm sure it's having a very happy time. She rather returns it to the security of her purse. So too with God and his church. So here is the tightrope that we need to to walk. We need to remember that no one in history has been as open-hearted towards sinners as Jesus. But neither has there ever been anyone as intolerant of sin as Jesus. And all of our churches need to think and to pray and to wrestle together over how we can be more like him. I suspect that some of us, by temperament, agree more with one half of of one of those things that I've said. Some of us will be too isolationist by temperament, and some of us, I suspect, will be too compromising. And we need to ask God for his wisdom to play our part in his mission to the lost. That's the, the very heart of what he's about, a mission to seek the lost. The second big lesson about God's character today, I'm calling it the heart of God. If the mission of God is to seek the lost, the heart of God is to rejoice over repentance. 
And uh, I've loved rediscovering this point as I've been um, working on this section over the last couple of months. Uh, you'll see the, the repetition of words joy and rejoice through the reading. In verse 5, when the shepherd finds it, he joyfully puts, I guess the thing smelt, I guess it was dirty, but joyfully he put it on his shoulders and carried it home. He calls his friends, rejoice with me. I tell you, says Jesus, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to. You get it again in verse 9. Rejoice with me again in verse 10 in the same way there's rejoicing. It's a joy that is spontaneous, not forced. It is shared, not solitary. And it is created when a sinner repents. We might think that God and his angels would Get tired of all of that rejoicing. However many hundreds of millions of souls have come back to him over the last 2,000 years. Maybe, you know, the party poppers are feeling a little, wearing a little thin. The hat is falling off to the side. It's like nine o'clock on Christmas Day when your, your crown is slightly ripped and feeling worse for wear. Do you know not a bit of it? There is great joy in heaven every time any one sinner comes home. You ask yourself, why did God go to all of the bother of sending his son into the world in the first place? Why did he stand back and allow him to be falsely accused and wrongfully executed? Answer, he endured all of that loss so that sinners like us might be able to come home. And so when it happens, there is overflowing heavenly joy. We need to zoom in then on that word repentance. It's the, it's the thing that is the catalyst for all of this divine celebration. So we need to understand it. And repentance is a fundamental change of mind that results in a change of action. It's a word that the military would use for an about turn. If they're walking in one direction, they stop, they turn around, and they walk in the other direction. You can rightly say they have repented. Preachers um, helpfully, I think, often therefore, as indeed the New Testament does, draw a distinction between mere remorse on the one hand and repentance on the other. Because repentance doesn't just mean that you know you are doing something wrong. Repentance doesn't just mean that you feel bad about doing it or that you're worried about being found out in court. It doesn't even mean that inside you think you want to stop. Repentance is instead the moment when you decisively change your mind and therefore your whole direction. Uh, there was a Puritan writer in the 17th century called Thomas Brooks. I think he's probably most famous for his definition of repentance. He says, repentance is the vomit of the soul. I'm sorry if you find that a slightly coarse way of expressing it. I found it very helpful. He, what he's getting at is that you know how when your body gets something in it that it knows is bad for it. It just wants to get it out as quickly as possible, food poisoning, something like that. Well, so repentance is when our soul realizes by God's grace that holding Jesus at arm's length and resisting his word is bad for us. And so it wants to get rid of it and instead to learn to receive Jesus's word and to feed upon him personally. That's what the tax collectors and sinners had done. They'd been going one way, 
They'd heard Jesus' word, and now they turned and were following and hearing him. And that repentance brings real joy to God's heart. It delights him. More even, in fact, than the 99 who don't need to repent. People sometimes wonder about that last line in verse 7. I take it that Jesus is saying, of course God is delighted when 99 people who were safely in the pen last week in his kingdom continue to be in his kingdom. That's a great thing. Persevering faith is a wonderful thing and an occasion of real joy. But there is something even more special when a sinner is brought home for the very first time. It's the same rationale that I get so excited when we go to a friend's wedding, the day when they they cleave to one another for the very first time. It's a day of great, great joy and excitement, isn't it? If you watch a friend get married or a child or a grandchild, something like that. Of course, it's still exciting that they're married on day two and day three and day four and day five. Those are, that's a great joy to us, but there's something really exciting about the wedding day, and I think that's the rationale, the picture here. The heart of God is to rejoice when sinners repent. That makes God, it makes Jesus very, very different to the Pharisees and teachers of the law in verse 2. Their response to seeing crowds of really unlikely people coming to their senses and coming home to God wasn't to rejoice, it was to, to grumble and to mutter. They've been doing it all the way through Luke's gospel. Um, Levi uh, became a Christian back in chapter 5 of Luke. He had a big party to celebrate The Pharisees weren't celebrating. They were saying, boo, hiss. Jesus shouldn't be hanging out with someone like that. Do you remember the the notoriously sinful woman in chapter 7? She was so, she knew what it was to be forgiven much, and so she loved Jesus much, and she wept at his feet. She wet his feet with her hair, washed them. She got some expensive perfume and poured it on his feet and the Pharisees didn't say how wonderful that the grace of God has reached her they said oh if Jesus was really from God he should know what she's like and be avoiding her like the plague they'll do it again in chapter 19 when Zacchaeus repents and Luke is recording their reaction to show his readers just how out of touch that religious establishment was with God. They've got absolutely no interest in seeking the lost. And so they've got no joy when sinners repent. They are so busy patting themselves on the back and looking down on others that they have failed to realize that they're about as far from God as they could possibly be. Two quick implications as we close. First, the the necessity of repentance. I guess that That's pretty obvious. Without repentance, there's no joy in heaven. Without repentance, there's no salvation for the sinner. Personally then, I cannot but ask us, have you repented? Have you vomited out that poison of ignoring Jesus and turned and started instead to hear and obey his word and Are you doing that daily, denying yourself, taking up your cross, and coming back to him? Do you know, if you've never done that before, 
you could be the reason that there's a party in heaven tonight. And corporately, uh, we've got to realize that the preaching of repentance is absolutely central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If ever you're in a church and they're not calling you to repentance, you want to go and have a word with the minister. If an evangelistic course underplays the preaching of repentance, it is not preaching the gospel. If a denomination blesses a life of sin of which God disapproves, it's not being loving. It is a deep offense to God and an act of hatred to man because it deprives people of the good news of salvation. Finally, the joy of repentance. Isn't it amazing to think if you're someone who has come back to to your senses, has come back to God whenever you did that, that on the day that you very first repented and turned back to God, heaven held a party to celebrate that Jesus was standing there and he was thinking, do you know, that that is why I went to earth. That is why I let them do all those things to me. It's why I was willing to die on the cross. It's why I delayed my return. It's so that people like you might repent. And you have. So now I rejoice and let's celebrate. And corporately, I take it that if God rejoices and welcomes sinners into his family when they repent, that we shall too. So here into church one week, turn, walks up a, I don't know, a serial adulterer. Here comes a benefits cheat. Here comes a single teenage mum. Here comes someone who used to push drugs to children. Here comes an alcoholic. But they've all turned back to God in repentance. And so, of course, we will rejoice, won't we, to welcome them into our church. Of course, we'll rejoice to invite them into our homes Of course, we'll rejoice to invest our lives in them and to show to them the very same love that God has shown to us. A minister friend was telling me that when um, someone from a a truly awful background, very, very scarred and broken, had a very bad reputation in town, turned up in church, one of the elders turned and said to him, we don't want people like that in our church. That would be impossible, wouldn't it, for that to happen in a church that has any knowledge of the grace of God. Two truths about God then this evening. They're designed to encourage the heart of any self-confessed sinners. They're designed to challenge the heart of the Pharisees. They're designed to shape the culture and mindset of a church. The mission of God is to seek lost sinners Praise him for that. And his heart rejoices when sinners repent. Praise him for that too. Let's pray. Our dear Father, there are so many um, bits of your word that we find really hard to understand. And even after we've heard people preach on them, sometimes we're still not sure we understand what you're saying. And so we just want to thank you for the clarity of your word this evening. Thank you for what you have taught us about what you are like.
Thank you that it is indeed your mission to go hunting for those who are lost and hopeless and helpless. Thank you for doing that for us as many of us as have been found by you. We praise you for your goodness to us in sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to die as we remember around this table now. Thank you for sending him to give his life so that we might be forgiven and restored to relationship with you. Thank you for the people that you brought into our life who taught us about the Lord Jesus and his grace. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our heart, opening us up to your word, enabling us to repent and believe your good news. And thank you for the blessing of knowing that you rejoice when sinners come home. We pray for us that your mission might be our mission, that your heart might be our heart, and that you would make us and all of our churches into communities of grace that celebrate your goodness to a lost world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in a